guys, it's your host, Avery Carl with The Short-Term Shop. I am super excited to dive into our 10-episode mini-series on the Cascade Mountains in Washington State market. Super cool market, really cool part of the country. Wanna give you guys a couple of notes first before we get started. If you guys are looking for up-to-date income numbers or data or purchase prices on properties in these markets, you can find them at theshorttermshop.com. You can set up a search to look for properties in any of the 20 markets that we operate in. You can also sign up to work with any of our short-term shop agents in any of those markets. So if you buy with us in any of those markets, we teach you everything you need to know about how to manage a short-term rental for free. And you can do that at theshorttermshop.com. Also, if you know you want to work with us already, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com and we'll get you set up with one of our agents in one of our 20 markets. We will, we have also got a Facebook group, short-term rental, long-term wealth, same title as my book on Facebook. If you guys want to just join us, it's 60,000 of my closest friends talking about short-term rentals and managing them and buying them all day long. And I believe that's it. And we can go ahead and dive into the show. Make sure to give us a like, follow, five-star review, etc., on YouTube. Instagram, Facebook, all at The Short-Term Shop. I'll stop talking at you and let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Short-Term Show mini-series on the Cascade Mountains. I almost forgot which market. <laughs> almost Hello, Cleveland, um, mm-hmm. on the Cascades. Uh, today we're going to talk about building your buying team. So we've got some familiar faces or one familiar face and a new one here to help me talk about that. First, Principal Wolf, will you introduce yourself to those who may not have listened to the previous few episodes? Yeah. Hello, everybody. I'm Doug Wolf. I am the short-term shop agent um, for Washington and the Cascade Mountains. So glad to have you back or welcome if it's your first time. <laughs> awesome. And Pranathi is going to introduce herself really quick. She's coming on to help us talk about this too. Yeah. Hey, everyone. My name is Pranathi. I live in the Bay Area in California, and I recently bought my first short-term rental property in the Cascade Mountains with Doug here. So uh, nice to talk to you all. All right. So today we're going to talk about the importance of, or the questions to ask to A, how to find the people that you need to get a deal under contract, get through contract, and then manage your deal. Uh, but we're also going to talk about some questions to ask. So typically people will either find their lender or their agent first, sometimes one, sometimes the other, doesn't really matter. But let's talk about how to find an agent. And guys, I've just, I was telling these guys offline that I have this conversation 1000 times a year about questions to ask and things to look for in an agent. And I recently did not take my own advice and it cost me a deal. So um, this is as much for me as it is for you. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about where where can we find agents? I think a lot of people that, you know, you're either taking other investor recommendations, a lot of Facebook groups, bigger pockets, uh, bigger pockets. Why can I not think of the word forums? So different places where you can ask other investors. Typically, it's going to be Facebook groups nowadays in 2023. And the things that I want you to focus on when you are asking for recommendations is making sure that the people you're getting the recommendations from have actually used these people in a transaction. Because especially when it comes to local real estate investing groups, vendors will catch on to that really quickly that, hey, there's a lot of the people that I want to hire me in this Facebook group. So let me get all my friends in there 
And when people ask, hey, uh, I need an agent in Austin, Texas, then everybody in there can recommend me. So to avoid that kind of fan club stuff happening, make sure that anybody who recommends someone, you ask them, hey, have you done a transaction with this per- this person? Because it's great if like I'm recommending my cousin and my cousin's really, really nice. But if they've never done a short-term rental deal or they've only done one or two, that's not beneficial to you. So make sure that you're asking if they've done a transaction with them. And that's with any anybody, not just agents or lenders. Uh, what are some other questions to ask what let's let's start with agents. So what kind of questions are you asking an agent to start off? Anybody want to take a swing at that? Because I can do it in a monologue for like three hours if you want. <laughs> um, when I'm buying properties and, you know, I have one in Orlando, I have I just sold one in uh, in the Smokies. My last one. I'm not in the Smokies anymore um, for a while. I'll be back. Uh, but anyway, um, I I've gone a couple routes. I've gone um, through bigger pockets. I've gone through local contacts. I've gone through the short term shop, obviously. Um, but I I always want somebody that understands investment properties, that understands short term rentals um, and the short term rental market, and isn't just Joe Schmo regular agent who knows how to list a house and um, knows how to show a house like. I, I want something beyond um, just the the basics of of being a realtor. So kind of questions I ask are, you know, do you invest? What do you invest in? Do you have any short-term rental properties? You know, how do you manage those? But those are the types of things that I want to get at with an agent that I'm choosing. I guess yeah. adding to that, um, I'm as a remote investor, I would want someone who's um, an expert in that area. Uh, and who can go take video tours for me. Um, and also, one thing I really got lucky with um, Doug is he gave us his opinions. And I did my own research, of course, but it was nice to have an expert opinion on the side so that I can validate what I'm thinking about a property. And since he's the boss on the ground, um, he can tell us additional insights like, um, oh, this looks good from the outside, but from the inside, these are the issues with this house. So if you still want to go ahead, you might want to think about so on, so on and so forth. Um, so finding an agent who can do all those things for you um, can really give you the confidence to invest in that area. Yes. Yeah. So I have a few questions that I ask people to get to, to come to that conclusion. And one is, and I, oh my God, I'm so mad at myself for not asking these questions in this most recent deal, I'm triggered here. But so I want to ask them, how many deals did you do last year? Uh, Because it's the way that you become experienced in a market is by doing deals and the market can change really, really quickly. So if you're not doing like a deal a month, then you might be behind the time. So if it, I call them Aunt Susie agents. Everybody's got an Aunt Susie who's been a real estate agent for 30 years, but they might only do one or two deals a year. So an Aunt Susie agent, Two years ago, when you had to offer over asking on everything, well, if they'd only done two deals in the last year, you might have lost a lot of deals because they said, hey, you know what, let's offer 20 under asking and see what happens. And then you get blown out of the water by 17 other people offering on this thing. Conversely, now, if if an Aunt Susie has only done two or three deals in the past year, they might still be telling you, they might have just caught on to the, oh, we got to offer like 50,000 over asking thing and tell you to do that now offering 50,000 over asking in a market where you don't have to do that anymore. So you want an agent who's doing a consistent number of deals over time so that they can 
so because they'll just have their finger on the pulse of the market a little better. And then I also want, this is where I screwed up. I want to ask them how many of those were short-term rental deals, because if they sold a hundred primary homes last year, that doesn't do you any more good than an agent who didn't sell any houses at all, because you need someone who is an expert in that. And so I've gotten under contract on what was a beautiful house, but now that I'm with a different agent, I've kind of found like it was really good that we fell out a contract on that because it is the most desired place to live in that area, but it actually doesn't really rent well because of the traffic going up to the different attractions uh, during during the high season. So it was good that I didn't end up buying that, but it was so beautiful that I was kind of like, oh, well, you know what? We can make this work. And I'm just, I'm glad that we didn't. So uh, that's very important that you get an agent who knows what rents the best more so than what is the prettiest because those two aren't always the same thing. Uh, other things to ask agents, uh, I just like to see, I always look at everybody's social media. Uh, we've had a situation in one of our markets not that long ago where there's one agent who goes in all of the Facebook groups and they talk a lot of crap about all the listings that they show. And presumably my guess is they do that to try and give some kind of perceived value to potential buyers that, oh, hey, I'm not going to let you buy anything. That's not cool. But what it's actually done is all the sellers are in these groups too. And we have sellers that will say, I'm not going to take an offer from that agent if they send us one. And so that can really like, if you've got social media matters, what what's on social media matters. Also, I like to see emotionally intelligent agents who are good communicators. That has gotten me in trouble before when I just wanted to see how many how many bucks I could get off during an inspection. There wasn't anything like terribly wrong with anything. There were a few things, but just throughout a number, not anything completely unreasonable uh, to see if I get a little few more concessions. And I think the way the communication went on that, uh, it ended up, we were going to buy the house at without any concessions. But the way the two agents communicated with each other just made us not even want to move further at all. Because if they just said, actually, no, you know, we've got some other interest. We're not going to give you anything. You can terminate if you want. We would have said, all right, cool. See you at closing. <laughs> but that's not what happened. So um, emotional intelligence is very important when it comes to negotiating a deal, whether that's your emotional intelligence or your agents. Uh, people don't like to get smacked around. So people don't like to be talked to like crap. And if you're doing that to the other side of the deal, you're costing your client money. If you come in there and say, well, we need another 50,000 bucks or we're walking, that's not going to get your client as many dollars off or as many concessions as, hey, okay, so the client really loves this. They really want to make it work. Here's a few things that they need, though, to really make this make sense for them to move forward. How do you think we can work this out? That's going to get a lot more for you than running in and busting heads. So that's my spiel on that. Uh, anything else related to agents that you think we need to know or ask? You touched on communication, and that's a huge one for me. Um, I really struggle with um, people that either communicate poorly or communi or don't communicate um, or don't communicate in a timely manner. So um, my expectation for myself is that uh, I will get back to you as soon as I can. Um, and that's usually within an hour's, but like at least within a day, like I, I will get back to you. Um, most of the time it's instantaneous. Like I'll, I will get back to you. Um, on the flip side of that, that's kind of my expectation in terms of an agent. Like I need to, I need to hear from you. I need to know where we're at. I need to know what's going on. I need to know, uh, and it doesn't have to be like, um, 
crazy uh, in-depth com- communication. It's like a three-word text, um, you know, waiting for appraisal. Like that does a lot for me. Um, <laughs> you know, when I have to be the one reaching out and then I'm waiting two or three days to hear back from a person, um, it's just one of my personal pet peeves and also one of my personal standards that I it is one of my standards to communicate well and I expect that of others. And so I'm going to test an agent on that um, to make sure they communicate well before I decide to to go with them. How do you test an agent on that? I literally by communicating with them and seeing how they respond. <laughs> oh. I mean, yeah, like, you know, if I reach out with an email or however I reach out initially and it takes, you know, a day or two or three for them to get back to me, that's like sign number one. And then you know, if I'm texting or emailing and I'm not hearing back, then I'm moving on. Gotcha. One other thing that I wanted to touch on is that a lot of traditional real estate investing podcasts or ones that came out years ago will say, whoever, whichever agent answers the phone first is the one that gets my business. And I definitely see the importance of that, like to what Doug spoke to communication and timeliness of communication, even just saying, uh, hey, I'm in a meeting right now. I'll call you after. Uh, but I do think that there's a lot more to it than just who answers the phone first, because whoever happens to be standing next to their phone and not on it at the time that you call does not qualify them as an expert in their in the type of asset class that you plan to buy. So it's great. It's a great sign if they're the first ones to answer, but that shouldn't be the only thing that you're looking for because these are not long-term rentals. These are not something that you can do with just any old house anywhere. In those markets or in different markets, you have to know what the regulations are, what the HOA restrictions are in a lot of them. So it's not like buying long terms. So just wanted to throw that one out there also. Uh, let's see. I think that is all on agents. So let's talk about lenders. So lenders are a little bit different because they're nationwide, whereas agents are kind of hyper-local. So you have a much larger pool of lenders. Well, let me back up. I have seen, I saw people during COVID living in like Minnesota, trying to sell houses in Florida from Minnesota, thinking they would just make some extra money like that. So make sure when you're asking agents those questions that they're not doing that, that they actually live in the area to where they can run over there and take videos or actually just, you know, are familiar with the area and didn't just, oh, I bought a house in Florida. So I'm going to get my license in Florida and sell people stuff in Florida. Uh, Try try to avoid that as much as possible because there's no substitute for living locally and, you know, knowing that, hey, you might not want to buy on this house on this street because that's uh, the street behind the garbage dump and it smells really really bad when the wind's blowing the wrong way like you want th- that kind of info on things uh but back to lending okay so lenders typically can be anywhere and be able to do loans anywhere so you want to make sure you find a lender the same way you find an agent that we talked about asking for recommendations and or maybe if you're just going on Google but if you're getting recommendations make sure again that you're getting recommendations from people who have used them before And um, you also want to make sure, same as an agent, that this lender has done a number of deals of the asset class that you're trying to buy in the market that you're trying to buy in, because there can be things that they can get tripped up on that might be specific to the market. Is there anything specific to this market, Doug, that trips up out-of-state lenders? Sometimes the classification of a property as rural um, will trip up a lender um, that doesn't understand the area and doesn't understand um, short-term rentals. So, 
um, you know, they will classify a property in a certain way, and then the, and then they will appraise the property based on on that. And so, you know, if the property's way out in the middle of nowhere, and it'll rent spectacularly because it's got a, a beautiful mountain view, but the lender sees it as a rural. I don't say that word where very well. Rural, rural um, property. Um, I've had instances where appraisals have come in extremely low because the lender didn't understand um, the value of the property based on um, rental and just saw it as a, a single family home. So I, I, that's the only one that comes to mind in terms of um, lenders classifying properties and like having an out of state person that doesn't understand the market appraising a property or, or even an appraiser um, hiring an appraiser to to look at a property a certain way rather than see it for its full potential value. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people say you need to use a local lender, which is partially true. You need to at least, you know, use a lender who maybe if they're not local, they've done a lot of deals, have a lot of experience in that market because there's a number of things that can happen. There might be things like you said about the rural properties or in some markets, it's like non-warrantable condos. In some markets, it's true log cabins that are like the logs stacked on top of each other that that they won't find out about until the appraisal and then say, oh crap, we can't do that. But on a even like higher level than that, a lot of times listing agents, when it comes to getting deals done, if listing agents are familiar with the lender you're using, it really helps because it, they can go to their client and say, oh yeah, th this lender's totally legit. I've worked with them a bunch of times and uh, they they get deals closed. So having that familiarity in the market makes a difference too. And also with appraisals, like Doug mentioned, <clears throat> a lot of times the local lenders have the local appraisers like as their first, they have to use what's called an appraisal pool. They're not allowed to just call each other. It has to all go through a system because of 2008, but they'll have their appraisal pool will be the local people who do it all the time, who they know, like, and trust. Whereas when you get a random lender on the other side of the country, they're going to be struggling to find an appraiser. And it might be somebody like from Tacoma who's coming in who doesn't really understand the very, very local value of this market and might you might get a wacky appraisal that way. So very important not to just look at rates either. So uh, Pranathi, I know you might you might be in this process now yourself where you're probably shopping for some rates uh, or for a lender and maybe you're getting targeted ads from big national lenders who do a lot of primary homes that have really low rates and then it may not actually apply to what you're trying to buy. Have you seen anything like that? Not recently. So for this particular property that I closed on, um, I went all cash. I haven't <laughs> had any experience with lenders. Oh, baller. <laughs> well, good for you. So were we able to get to negotiate a better deal because of that? I think so. It definitely had more leverage when it came to offer strategy. Um, we uh, we saw that sellers preferred all cash, but there were also a lot of other people on the market doing all cash offers. Um, yeah, it's an extra bonus point. Uh, yeah, it is a bonus point. <laughs> Good for you. It, it was difficult. Her her situation was difficult in, in terms of... Um, the particular style of cabin that she was looking for were just in really high demand. And um, so we actually had to go over asking um, and weigh some other things in order to get her under contract. Um, we lost yeah, what- Had to we, move very quickly to yeah, get, 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 get it closed, yeah. Yeah, we lost what, two or three? Lost three, to, yeah. Three, yeah. So I think it, all the three to other all cash offers. Yes, 
Yes. Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, if you're offering all cash and um, not getting offers, it's because there are other all cash offers. So yeah, it was really unique. Awesome. So let's talk about home inspectors then. So we talked about lenders. Uh, oh, the where do you find lenders? Can be Facebook groups, but honestly, your agent <clears throat> excuse me, is going to have recommendations for lenders that they've worked with in the past for you to check out. And typically they they will be lenders that will make listing agents comfortable. Uh, so definitely check that out. I know a lot of people get kind of weirded out by agent recommendations because they're like, oh, they're in on it together to make sure I close. Well, yeah, we are. We do want to make sure you close. We want to make sure you get a great property. But uh, they're like any sort of kickbacks, et cetera, are 1000% illegal. And the agent and the lender would both lose their licenses for a second. I mean, would both lose their licenses forever, not for a second. So it's not something that they would choose to do to make one deal close. So I, don't worry about that. I've seen a few people get kind of like, oh, well, I don't know, because maybe they're like, it's a conspiracy. And it's not. They just want you to have a smooth deal. And they've worked with these people in the past and know, and they should be giving you a few different recommendations to check out, not just one. So um just keep that in mind that that kind of stuff is super legal and probably not happening, even if, if that's something that you're worried about. So um, yeah, always ask your agent for their recommendations because they should have a few. So next, let's talk about home inspectors. So this is another one where asking your agent is the best way to go because they've probably got several home inspectors who they work with regularly. Again, um, something though, to keep in mind, I've had a few clients in the past say, uh, I don't care which home inspector it is, just schedule whoever you usually use. And, uh, we'll go with that. It is your job as a buyer to call and interview them and talk to them and make sure you, you like the person that you're hiring, because guess what happened the very last time I did that, which I was still pretty new. The very last time I did that, somebody said, just schedule who you normally schedule. So I did. They missed some squishy floors in one of the bathrooms. And when the buyer noticed it a few months later, guess who they came after? Me, because I recommended that home inspector who missed that thing. So always make sure that you call vendors that are being recommended to you and interview them. Make sure that you like them. Make sure that you understand what what uh, constitutes like what what incl is included. I can't find my words today. I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like I'm getting old. Uh, what is included in a typical home inspection. So don't assume that they're going to check the well in a typical home inspection because they don't. So make sure you call and ask what, what all that constitutes, what all they do, and make sure you like the person before you hire them. Don't have other people hire your people for you. Um, anybody have any any anecdotes to share or advice on home inspectors? I did the same thing. I asked Doug for a few references. I researched them and found one that I really liked. I think what helped me is looking at sample reports they give. Um, some people have it on their website. Some people um, give them upon request. Um, I really liked one which had um, how to fix things um, as well. So it, this might need a contractor, this might need just a handyman. It, this, this is just a recommendation, don't need to do this and so on. So yeah, hide them and it was a good experience. So. Awesome. Yeah. And that, I mean, home inspections, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, so let's talk about, we've been, we've gotten through your agent, gotten through your lender, got through your home inspector. So let's assume you've made it through your home inspection and you're looking at closing now. So let's talk about the vendors and people that you'll need after closing, like your cleaners, your maintenance people, 
uh, other vendors. So how should we find, how can we find those people? I think um, so in the Cascades, I would be your first reference or point of reference for that. So um, I generally provide, you know, a short list of qualified professionals in those areas for you as a starting point. But I would I would say even beyond that, I always recommend local Facebook groups um, for each of the markets that I'm in um, and joining those Facebook groups and then using those Facebook groups to to source those people. So um, in the materials that I send to my clients, generally it says join this group, join this group, join this group. Um, and, and then, you know, here are a few people, but, um, so I provide a starting point, but those Facebook groups are really invaluable in each of those markets, um, because those are local people that are going to, um, be using people already and, uh, have the, the local knowledge of who works and who doesn't, and you know, who's worth at least giving a call. So what are, at what point should we start interviewing cleaners in the process? This is a trick question. Um, I can answer it if you want. Well, I mean, for me, I, there's like probably in, in that inspection to closing um, time period is when I would do it as an investor and as a, when I have done it, uh, when I've bought properties um, across the country. So I would start then. Uh, I do think, you know, there I would start then, but I wouldn't necessarily land on anybody until I have the property set up and and ready to go. Boom. So, yeah, that was the answer. So a lot of times they're not going to talk to you until they know that you're closed and they can come look at it. It's kind of wasting their time if you're you know just got under contract, you're not even through the inspection yet, and you're you start having these people come out and look at the property because you don't even know if you're going to close on it yet because the inspection hasn't happened. You don't know if it's falling apart under there. So I like to say, you know, make sure you're through your uh, appraisal. So there's very little that's going to get in the way of you closing at that point. I think that's a good time to start interviewing and uh, asking questions and, um, and all that stuff. So what kind of questions do you guys ask cleaners when you're interviewing them? Um, I usually ask them how many properties um, that they currently clean, um, what their scheduling is like, how they schedule um what they do and what they don't do um specifics to my property so do they you know do they take care of the hot tub do they um clean the grill do they you know so specifics for my property um and then again that communication piece i want them to be able to communicate and primarily because i'm so far away from my properties um be the eyes and ears and and boots on the, on the ground for my property so how they, how they're going to do that and whether or not they're comfortable with that like whether they're a cleaner or whether they're a cleaner plus a you know kind of caretaker watcher of my property and um, communicator of things that are wrong so that I can address them. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a bad idea to go in with like a crazy checklist and want to completely change the way someone has been working when when you go to hire them and they probably won't take your your job if you're doing that. But you want to ask them how they work, you know, what they what they cover, what what they do every day, like what their checklist looks like and what their expectations are, especially. And you you nailed it, Doug. What's most important is their ability to communicate with you. And it's almost more important than the job that they're doing, because you can you can tweak the job. You can change that. You can say, oh, you know what? I think we want to do this instead of that. But we can't say I want you to be this way instead of that way and ask them to change uh, because their communication is not something that's typically going to change. So I think that's exactly right that 
communication is the most important and the job is as important, but I would say almost secondary to that. Yeah. And I would say, don't get hung up on um, how they schedule a lot. of I've seen a lot of people do that. Like, uh, oh, well, you know, I have to do this or that or the other thing to schedule my cleans. Um, you know, I have a cleaner in Orlando and I have a shared spreadsheet and I have to put my bookings in on a, a shared spreadsheet. And everybody's like, well, can't you just send them your iCal? Well, that's not the way they work. Um, and I've tried to get them there, but um, they do a great job of cleaning. They do a great job of communicating. They do a great job of taking care of my property. So I have to put some things in a spreadsheet. Big deal. Uh, you know, cleaners in Tennessee, I just send them my iCal and they schedule that way. So um, multiple ways can work if you're flexible. It, and really it comes comes down more to um, are they cleaning my place well and are they communicating well? So I'll, I'm willing to be flexible on my end uh, on the scheduling piece if those two things are there for me. Oh, you also want to ask cleaners what what kind of maintenance, like small maintenance items they'll take care of, like changing light bulbs and changing air filters and things like that. Do they take care of the hot tub or is that going to have to be a secondary person? Do they take the laundry offsite or are they trying to wash it while they're there in your washing machine? I think that makes a big difference because A, that's a lot of wear and tear and potential for things for your washing machine, but um, it's really just not efficient. It's much more efficient if they take the dirty laundry, put it in their truck, put the clean stuff on and wash it offsite later and bring it back later or, or on the next turn. But some of them don't do that. So I think that's an important one. And some people don't want them to do that. Some people get real paranoid about them mixing linens with other people's linens and that they're going to lose it and their quality is better than other people's quality linens and they worry about um, bed bugs and stuff. So they want it washed there. So you kind of have to think about what that efficiency looks like. And I mean, I honestly think that's asking a little too much because a cleaner has to clean more than one place to make a living. And if you're asking them to wash everything there, especially if it's a big house, that might be two or three loads of laundry. And that puts them there at five hours. They can't turn more than one place if they've got to be at your place for five hours. Uh, so I think that that's something to, to consider. Uh, what else will they, are they providing like your restocking things, your toilet paper, your paper towels, your coffee filters, things like that. Or are they going to just say, Oh, Hey Doug, it looks like your out of uh, paper towels. Can you Amazon me some? So these are all the things that you want to ask to make sure that you're going to have your processes set up the way your cleaner wants them. Let them choose the color sheets you get. Cleaners are can be very picky about whether they want white sheets or off-white. Some of them say has to be white because they no, because it's easy to bleach. Some of them say no matter how much you bleach white stuff, sometimes it still looks dingy and you can't fix it. So they want it to be off-white. Ask them that. And they'll give you an idea too of you know how many sets of of different items that you need. But anyway, on to maintenance people. It's a little different than cleaners because cleaners you have your one cleaner or cleaning company, and that is your person. You are married to them. But when it comes to maintenance people, you need a list of like ten because you don't really know when something's going to happen, and you want to be able to go down your list, call your favorite one first. If that person can't get there, you need to have other people you can call. So you just go down to the next one. So you want to try and rotate them in so that you are giving them all kind of regular jobs so that when you do call, they know who you are and you're not just some random person that called once last year and hasn't called again. So you try to keep a relationship with as many maintenance people as possible. Uh, do you guys have anything to, to add to that? Um, no, other than it's... I think I think that's probably the most difficult part um, of managing a property is who's available when. Um, you know, you, uh, 
I have my go-to people and then all of a sudden they don't respond or they like they're busy or they take it on this huge project and so they can't get to me. And so, yes, having multiples, um, but then just oftentimes on lower on the list, um, you'll find people that aren't qualified to do the job, but will do it anyway. Um, and so just really being mindful of having those people and like you said, feeding them regularly, but also um vetting them um prior to hiring you know i've had people come out to my properties that didn't weren't able to solve the problem that i was asking them to solve and i'm like well why did i call you in the first place so just making sure they're able to actually do the thing that you're asking them to do and i think it's also important to understand the distinction between what warrants a maintenance mm-hmm. person or handy handyman and what warrants an actual contract because i see people sometimes and they'll call contractors for things that don't require a contractor like, Hey, can you fix this deck board? And then they get mad because they're not calling them back. And I'm like, well, cause that's too small of a job for them. These people want to build decks, not place a deck board. So you kind of have to understand the difference between those smaller jobs and what a major job would be. And also I think it's important to understand too, that a lot of, a lot of handy people, this is not going to be a permanent thing for them. So, you know, the people that you used, three or four years ago might be onto something else now. And you, it's kind of a transient industry that you're going to have to keep adding and keep adding. You're probably not going to have the same two or three for the next 10 years. I would also make sure you talk about what, what things are going to cost upfront. So what, you know, what's the price for a call of, Hey, can you go check this? And then if they don't find anything, you know, what, how much are you paying them? Also are, are you paying per job or per hour? It's very important to understand what the cost of things are going to be upfront, whether that's with a handy person or a contractor and understanding what the cost of a job is, what the cost of materials are. And uh, you pay for the materials and they will, I have Luke every single time we're doing something uh, like we might be at the zoo with our kids and he gets a call from Lowe's. Hey, uh, so-and-so is here to buy this, this, and this. Can we charge it to your account? Yes. So you want to be the one paying for those materials. It prevents any padding of the price of those. Uh, what else? Am I missing anything? Uh, no, I would I would also say, as you were talking, I thought of this, um, paying them. So people that show up, people that do the job, people that, uh, you know, get it done and get it done well, um, paying them promptly um, is probably the most important thing in retaining them uh, long term. Uh, you know, if they do the job, they get it done. If you pay them right away, um, they appreciate that and they're more likely to work for you in the future. Got it. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, is there anything else surrounding our buying team that we haven't talked about or management team that we haven't talked about? Where does insurance come into that um, that team? Is that part of the team or is that post-close? Well, yeah, let's talk about insurance. We're going to talk about part of it, but not necessarily the person of it on a later episode. But yeah, let's talk about how to find a, a good insurance person. Yeah. So particularly, well, it's probably not. Well, I was going to say it's probably important in Washington, but it's not nearly as important as Florida um, these days. Um, but just knowing the cost of those up front, I think, and getting multiple quotes during your um your closing period so that you know what your insurance is going to be when you do close and how that's going to impact your your payment, I think is really important. Um, and so starting off by just getting quotes and then um, interviewing the, the person after that, I think is the way that I usually go about it. Yeah. 
Uh, just shop around, shop around for the the best coverage. Pay attention to what everything covers, especially if you've got water on your property or uh, it, or if you're providing any kind of ATV or anything like that. I don't know if that would it'd be anything that would be done here, but anything, you just want to make sure that you're covered for literally everything. Uh, Proper does a great job of that. There's a new one out there called Steadily, I think, for short-term rentals. It's pretty comprehensive. But just make sure that you are getting short-term rentals, specific insurance, regular homeowners homeowners insurance is not going to cut it, nor will like long-term renter insurance. You need not only short-term rental specific home insurance, you also need a commercial umbrella policy, which commercial umbrella policies are really, really affordable. So uh, ask around, call everybody, see who can give you, you know, the best coverage I think is more important than the price here. Good catch. Good catch, Doug. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, All right. Well, guys, I think that covers, you know, building your team. There's probably a few other people that you would build out from there, like your more specific HVAC technicians and roofers and things, but you'll be able to build those out from your cleaner and your few handy people that you get. So uh, if you guys are ready to buy in the Cascades with Doug, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com and we'll get you connected. Or if you want to just learn more, you can join us at our Facebook group. Same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Got a lot of people in there just hanging out, talking about short-term rentals. And uh, Or you can join us every Thursday. We've got a live Q&A where we answer all your questions on short-term rental investing. You can sign up at that at strquestions.com. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) 